Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. Um, if you're a first-timer today, welcome to our church. I'm glad to have you guys here, as I think Emily said, and maybe Peter, too. Um, we are in Genesis right now for a sermon series, so uh, if you're just kind of here for the first Sunday or catching up for, after being gone for a while, uh, we are in Genesis 29, so uh, we're getting to, to the end. Uh, we, we've been in this series since January, and we'll finish up in about a month and a half, and we're really picking up speed at this point. Uh, and I think I said last week, we're, we're definitely in the part of the book where kind of large-scale summarizing uh, is necessary. And so just the, the, the narratives are longer, and the preaching points within them are a bit more specific, and so we'll do some summarizing uh, today right within the passage. But the uh, passage is uh, Genesis 29, 1 to 30, 24, and we'll focus on 29, 13 to 35. So that'll be the main focus for today if you um, want to kind of highlight that, but I'll summarize what comes before it and what comes after it. Uh, but before we get there, uh, remember that Genesis is the book of beginnings. Uh, it is the first book of the Old Testament, the first book of the whole Bible, and really sets the stage theologically and otherwise for the whole storyline. And uh, we, we've called it theological history a lot in this series because it's history. These things really happened. These people really lived. God really spoke these words to them, and they're real people, real sinners like us. And so it, it's relevant and important for us in that, in that regard and other regards too. Um, but it's also theology. So, like, I mean, we would say this about secular historians as well. They don't record everything. They record the most important things. It's the same with God, who's kind of the great historian. He records what's theologically relevant and important. He records things that end up typifying his, himself and his son, who would later come into the world to fulfill all of this stuff. And, and so that's what we've been doing. We've been seeing Christ in all of Scripture as Jesus himself does. The whole book is about Jesus. I can't uh, pound that home enough or give you guys uh, any greater encouragement for how you study your Bibles than that. See Jesus in everything. Expect, as the early church fathers would say, those uh, men who kind of wrote about these things in the first few, actually, decades and centuries after Christ ascended to heaven, after he died and rose again and ascended, they would say they expected to find Christ in all of Scripture. When they went to, to, in, into every page, every verse, really, every section, they expected to see him there. And he was. Uh, everything's about him. God is, God is sharing himself with sinners. And the ultimate way he does that is Christ. And so whether it's a foreshadowing kind of way or an ultimate way, later in the Bible, everything is about him. Everything's about his grace. Everything is about his promises. And so in this section of Genesis now, this is all after sin has come into the world. God has made the world. It's all fallen. It's all gone to pot. Everything's kind of really turned to hell in a sense and been corrupted. And God has exiled people from himself. And, but then he starts to make promises to these uh, men called patriarchs and their wives and their kids and, and these surrounding characters as well, made promises to undo that curse, to undo that pain, to undo the death. And so I, I think I've said before in this series, everything from saving people from death to dealing with the problem of why you can't grow corn very well in your backyard and everything in between he's dealing with. And so everything's gone to pot, everything's been cursed, but he's going he's gonna to address it all, but starting with sinners, uh, people made in his image like us who have rebelled against him, who have sinned and done what is wrong in his eyes, but who's especially, who have especially set up ourselves on the throne of the universe. That's, remember, the ultimate sin is that. It's not uh, ultimately murder or adultery or things like that of the mind or the body. It's doing those things and thinking that we're right in doing them or thinking that we're God and kind of doing what's right in our eyes. The Bible talks about that a lot. 
doing what's right in our eyes and self-deification and, and really just thinking, oh, God's there, but I don't really need him. And so that's the ultimate kind of staged rebellion or coup against God that all humanity has participated with. And, and God has been patient, though. He's, he's again, he's, he's promised to undo it. And, and one of the ways he's starting to do that is by selecting this family, starting with a man named Abraham in, in chapter 12, and he makes promises to them. Uh, the, these initial people he showed grace to, even though they're undeserving sinners. And these stories, as we've been saying, have become paradigms of salvation ahead of time, and, and even uh, who themselves at times whisper Christ and his gospel through their words and actions. So that's just a summary of how to read these patriarchal narratives, which is the, basically the latter two-thirds or actually three-quarters of, of, um, of the book. It's just these stories of a family, and, and they do those two things. They resemble us and they resemble Christ, sometimes both at the same time, sometimes just one or the other. So see yourselves in their sin See an example of faith that they have as messed up sinners who trust in God alone. See that. But also see them whisper Christ because they are the ancestors of Jesus Christ. So we, we talk about genealogy in this book a lot because Genesis does. This is the, the beginnings of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's Genesis. The beginnings of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so this is the beginning of the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see some resemblance. It's, it's not just bloodline, it's, it's resemblance, it's typification, it's prophecy. And so we're seeing that to uh, weave in and out of these, of these narratives. So with that said, a uh, little summary then where we've been these past couple of weeks. We're looking at Jacob, who is the grand, I mentioned Abraham. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And uh, so basically what's happening right now is he is running from his brother Esau, his twin brother, uh, and Esau hates him, wants to kill him for some deceitful things Jacob did to him. And so his father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah, say run, flee to Haran, which is uh, far east from where they are currently in Canaan. It's his mother's homeland. And they say not only flee for your life, but also as long as you're there, find a wife. And there are reasons why they're asking them this. Uh, they've seen uh, what Esau has done and others when they intermarry with people that um, God has kind of called them to separate from. It causes problems. And, and Esau has actually taken a wife that it said, and I didn't read this section last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, but um, how it caused problems for, for them and for Esau as well. So they said, go back to our homeland, find a wife from uh, the, the homeland of your mom, Rebecca. And then, um, so on the way there, he has a dream, talked about that last week. And then when he arrives, he almost immediately meets Laban, his mother's brother his uncle, and his daughter, Rachel. And so we'll pick up in verse 13 here and read about what happens. So as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, you should therefore serve me for nothing. Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give, you, uh, give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days 
because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and, again and, now this, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So basically what happens after this then, to summarize um, the latter part of the, the, the section, but it's, it's really the beginning of chapter 30, is that Rachel threw uh, her servant Bilhah and Leah threw her servant Zilpah. So they actually kind of give their servants to Jacob as well. So he has four wives, these servants as well. Uh, they all... The servants bear two more sons each. Leah is able to conceive again. She has two more sons. Rachel finally is able to conceive herself and has one son named Joseph. He'll become important a little bit later in Genesis. We'll talk about him. Then uh, much later, uh, I forgot to go here, much later in chapter 35, Rachel has one more son, Benjamin, but um, Rachel dies in childbirth. Uh, but these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, next week, we'll talk about how Jacob's name is, uh, is changed to Israel and the significance there. Uh, but these 12 sons represent these 12 tribes and kind of this family that, that's birthed into a nation that God kind of covenants on a more corporate national level uh, a little bit later in uh, the, the story. But we're going to look at these first four kids that Leah has, actually a couple of them in particular. I want to just stop there for today, but just, just so you know uh, that there are other children born, whether it's through Leah and Rachel or his other two servants that, um, that are given to, uh, to Jacob. So, so the big question here is what, uh, like it always is really, or some form of this, what theological truths do we learn from this story? And uh, a disclaimer first on this super important first story like this, um, is, is, and this, this kind of came up a couple weeks ago too with uh, some Jacob and Esau stuff, is that, and actually for, for Abraham is, his, himself as well with his wife, is this disclaimer on uh, seeing theological truth in narratives full of sin and dysfunction. Uh, and, and we have to go here. We, we have to embrace this and understand this idea uh, that God makes good from evil. He just does this all over the place. God takes a mess, he enters into it. He takes dysfunction, he enters into it. 
He takes wickedness and enters into it and uses it for good. We don't have this principle. Actually, this principle comes from Genesis. Later in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph himself says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you intended for wickedness, God used it to bring about great good for for masses of people. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, in the Joseph narrative in about a month or so. But we believe God makes good from evil, that he's sovereign over all so he can use things and people while not condoning them at the same time. So again, without this principle, we'd have to immediately jettison or dismiss this story as a big pile of dysfunction, right, and just move on. And so, uh, but, but in fact, God is able to enter into these things. And that's really good news. If we're messy people, if we have messy marriages, like this story is chock full of, if we live in a messy world, then this is really good news. That God doesn't kind of sniff it out and say, ew, gross, and go over here and look for something pure. God is in the business of making messy things beautiful or working through them uh, to, make them, to make them favorable to him and uh, to, to somehow redeem them. And, and that's ultimately through his son Christ, and we'll come back to him. So here in this story, then, the fact that Laban deceives lies flat out, treats his daughters extremely poorly, and that Jacob is an unintentional polygamist, and actually an intentional polygamist a little bit later on when he doesn't object to Bilhah and Zilpah being given to him, like Jacob's kind of passively um, accepting of that idea, so he actually is sinning there uh, as well. Uh, and, and even the idea that here he's, maybe you saw this, but he's marrying his cousin, which wasn't sinful in this culture, but you might just think messy, gross, you know, or something. So there, but whether it's sin or just kind of messiness, most of that, what I labeled there as sin, this is still something God uses to communicate something to us. And again, if you're new to the Bible, I just encourage you to get used to that, to accept that, because uh, Genesis can't really be understood theologically without that principle. And really the gospel can't. Because understand the gospel, you look at the cross and you say, God used that, that evil. God used that wickedness. God used that abhorrence. Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation himself when he kind of looks ahead to this fact where, where God absorbs or takes on sin. God, the, the worst of evils, the worst of desolations, the worst of injustices, the God of the universe condescends, dies among criminals in the worst of ways. It's an abomination. But God used it to bring about the greatest of goods. God used it to bring about the greatest of salvations for people. And so it's really hard to understand the gospel if we can't look at a story like this, which is a lesser evil, full of lesser evils than that, uh, and yet good still can come from it. So, so just an encouragement there as you guys read, read your Bibles uh, really indefinitely the rest of your lives. So with that said, here's what uh, is going on. It kind of had it up here on top, but uh, the first thing we're going to look at is we'll look at Leah herself in just a minute as a picture of us. But before that, this principle of Laban having two daughters and Jacob having two wives, of course, uh, same two women, and those two women representing two covenants. These women represent two covenants. And so in Genesis 29, 16, it says Laban had uh, two daughters. And so what I mean by two covenants is, and we've looked at this theme a lot in Genesis, if you've been here, this will be a little bit of review, but if you're new, uh, when we talk about covenants, we talk about ways of God relating to people, and then people to God. 
Uh, one of which is, and what God is trying to do here then sometimes covenantally in the Bible is to show faulty covenants or ways of connecting with him that give way to greater ways of connecting with him. And so one of these ways is intended to be a faulty way. The other way is intended to be a much better one. And so remember, the same issue has come up earlier in Genesis with the theme of Abraham having two sons. And we looked at this theme interpretationally through the lens of Galatians 4, which is a New Testament book commenting theologically on the fact that Abraham, who is Jacob's grandfather, having two sons, Ishmael and then Isaac. And, and what he says there, Paul says, is now this may be interpreted allegorically. They, Ishmael and Isaac, uh, represent two covenants. The old way of works, which leads to slavery, a way of law, a way of connecting with God based on condition or what we do before him. But then a better way, a way of grace and freedom that's based on God's promises, God giving to us based on nothing we do, just love. And so he, he read that allegorically and made commentary on that uh, covenantally to encourage, as this is doing, to encourage Christians that we're under this latter covenant. And so Isaac then, and, and this is, again, going back a few weeks, but in Abraham's story, remember, Ishmael was worked for. Ishmael was a son that Abraham uh, exuded uh, human effort to bring about him into the world, and his wife Sarah as well. It was human effort that brought him into the world. With Isaac, it was God's miracle. It was God's promise. It was entirely God's work. Human effort, God's effort. Old Testament, New Testament. Law, grace. It's up to people. It's up to God. They are contrasts. They're not put in a blender and kind of spun together. They are distinctly contrasted, as, as Paul says, says here. Now, so back in today's passage, the same language is used. Uh, Abram had two sons in Genesis 29, 16. Laban had two daughters. And, in, and before this, Isaac had two sons. This theme of pairs comes up over and over and over again in Genesis to make the same point repeatedly. And that is there are two ways of connecting with God. The first is by works and it's lesser. The latter is by grace and it's greater. So in today's passage, the same thing comes, comes to pass. Rachel is worked for. Leah is given. One is by human effort. The latter is a gift. It's the same story, just through a different character lens. It's happening all over. And I can't tell you guys how important this is. It's something I, I was aware of, but just kind of freshly um, realized this this week when I was uh, studying this passage again, just realizing how much this is the theme of Genesis. There are other themes as well. But without this theme, we can't understand the book. God is pounding home repeatedly this idea that there are pairs, and they represent allegorically, symbolically different ways and they're not on the same level so that we might get to God through grace or just or better better said that we believe God gets to us by grace and we don't get to him by by works it undergirds that idea saved by God's gift not by what we what we do in fact uh, there's another place in this uh, chapter two we see the same idea um, and that is with Leah's, uh, Leah's two sons. Or he has, she has four, but these latter two, Levi and Judah, also juxtaposed to tell us the same thing. Uh, so Levi is the thirdborn, and some of you guys know this, but Levi is the, the, the tribe of the law in the Old Testament. So he's an individual that, that gave way to the priests, or the ones who mediated God and people 
with the Ten Commandments, with the moral law, with other laws that God gave. And it was a conditional covenant. God said, do this, then you will live. If you don't do it, you'll be exiled further from me. You'll be punished. You'll be judged. Levi gave way to the priests to kind of mediate that old covenant. Judah is a tribe of kings, and it's who Jesus came from. So uh, actually, in Hebrews elsewhere in the New Testament, they make a big deal of this, saying Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the tribe of the law. He's not from the tribe of doing. He's not from the tribe of condition. He's not from the tribe of approaching God based on your works. He's from a distinctly different tribe. That's another sermon. But for today, understand that from Judah is the line of David, the tribe of kings, and it's, and it's Jesus' line. But what you see here, kind of going back to the Rachel-Leah difference in terms of the works and grace contrast, you see it here as well with these two and what they end up representing. Not right here in the story, they're just kids, but later in terms of what God has uh, come from them. And so what's fascinating then is what you see, and this is where this, this idea is undergirded, what Leah says when both these children are born. It's fascinating, and it undergirds the idea. With Levi, she says, this time my husband will love me because I have borne him three sons. Look what I've done. I'm earning love through my work. This time he will love me because I have done something. Her works are in focus. And again, Levi is the tribe of this idea, Old Testament priesthood and law. Not that it's evil, it's good, but it's faulty because it's based on us, not on God. He represents then an old way he represents covenanting with God through law. Judah, on the other hand, Leah says something distinctly different. She says, this time, starts the same with the this time wordage, but then she says, this time I will praise the Lord. It's not about her. God's works are in focus. Her worship is in focus. And Judah is the tribe of kings that gives way to Jesus and, and resembles the New Testament uh, ahead of time. And, and that's Again, this is, the, this is the important idea here is to understand that Jesus is in this line. Jesus is not from this way of, uh, this covenantal way of connecting with God. He is distinctly from the line of Judah, from the line of David. He is king, and there's a, he offers a new way in this regard. And so backing the truck up just a little bit here in terms of where, where Leah is coming from, and we see that in this story, that it, it needs to be kind of just underlined, and that is Leah is in the line of Christ, not Rachel, because Leah bears Judah. So in this story, when we see preference given to Leah, and in a sense to Judah in terms of what's said, and it's, it's, it's more right to say, this time I'll praise God, than this time I will boast in my effort. The preference given to Leah and Judah is, uh, is important, and it's by God, and it's over Rachel in the first story, and it's over Levi in the latter part of the narrative, and, and the reason is theologically because elsewhere the Bible pounds this idea home in more prepositional ways. Grace is preferred over works in terms of how we access God. It's the better covenant, the better way. So Leah, given unexpectedly, Judah, associated with worship, that's the line of Jesus Christ, not the line of Rachel. Not the line of what Jacob had to do to get her, and that was work for, for 14 years. Jesus then is from the line of marriages being given, not earned. 
That's where your Savior is from. Theologically, that's huge. Jesus is not from the line of marriages being worked for. He's not from the line of condition. He's rather from the line of praise and worship and grace. Not the line of my work earns love. Because your work and my work will never, ever earn God's love. Please hear that, you guys. Your work will never, ever, ever earn God's love. It's given freely. And Leah is a representation of this. Judah is a representation of this. Rachel and Levi are this dark contrast against which Jesus stands out to say he's not from that type of way of God working. It's a narrative that contrasts with Jesus. It doesn't complement. It's different. It's incredibly good news. You know, with God for us, God does not say to us, seven years of work, seven years of work, Denny, then you can enter in. Seven years of work, Ian, seven years of work, Eric. It's not the gospel. Fourteen years of work, Chris. It's not what the gospel says. It does not say to us, put your time in first. There's no precondition to salvation. Nor is there a whisper of Leah's statement when Levi was born, uh, the, the idea of, look what I've done. There's no whisper of that in the New Testament or at the cross. There's no whisper of, now God will love me because I've done so and so. There's no whisper of that at the cross in the empty tomb. It's rather a whisper of the story of Leah and the story of, of Judah in the story of grace. And also, um, if you see in this, the, the, the important thing here too is chronological, is to see that Rachel comes before Leah in the story. And here, Levi is the thirdborn. He comes before Judah, who's the fourthborn. In the same way, the Old Testament comes before the New Testament. The old way comes before the new way. The faulty way comes before the better way. The broken way comes before the distinctly different way that's better, better, because it's based on God's promises, because it's based on rest, because it's based on God being amazing before us, not us. It's based on grace, or to use Romans language, it's based on grace, not the law. We're, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. We're no longer under the law, covenantally. He, he's not mixing them. He doesn't say, well, we're kind of under it now. Well, we're under grace, but we're still kind of under We still have to do it. I mean, everyone knows we've got to keep the Ten Commandments, right? And those are important things to keep. He doesn't say that. We're no longer under the law. We're under the fact that, that God died for our sins. That's our new law. That's our gospel. That's the covenant that God, God makes with us. And so, when we look then to, to Christ, and this could be 60 pages here of things, but we look to Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah. We sang about this hymn last week with those words, the Son of David. This is what our Savior says. He, he says things like, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. I did not come to be served like Laban asked to be served. Laban does not speak for God here. Laban does not represent the new covenant. Laban asked to be served. 
and he was. But God does not. Christ, Christ from the line of Judah, the line of Leah, operates and speaks differently. He says, I did not come to be served, I came to serve you. How? By dying on a cross as a ransom for many. So to buy you back from sin and death, a ransom was paid. It was paid with his own blood. That's how he serves us spiritually, ultimately. Paul, and the Apostle Paul says here in Romans 3 in the New Testament, the righteousness of God or the gospel has been made known or manifested apart from law, apart from what Rachel and Levi represent. And that's through Jesus. The righteousness of God, the power of God in salvation, the way we connect with him now, this new way has been manifested and it's not connected with the law anymore. It's connected with a person, with Jesus Christ. And, and in Galatians 1, this idea of Jesus giving up his life for us. Gr grace comes out of nowhere. Like Leah in that tent that one night with Jacob, out of nowhere. What is this? You know, even a messed up story like that. You know, where, where Jacob's drunk and she's totally veiled and it's dark and he can't tell who she is and they have sex and they wake up the next morning. What? You know? Even that, even that messed up story can communicate something about what it means now to connect with God. Isn't that incredible? Not condoning Laban's deceitfulness, not condoning polygamy, which comes later but saying, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is from Leah. It's incredible. Grace comes out of nowhere. <laughs> Not from in here. Grace comes out of nowhere unexpectedly, like Leah to Jacob. It's really good news for sinners. No precondition, but a gift. All right. Second thing here today is <clears throat> flowing from all that I just said, and that is the idea that, that Leah represents us as well, as a person. So we'll look at this a little more personally here, in that she's hated, but clearly loved, hated by others, but clearly loved by God. Verse uh, 31 says, when the Lord, look at how God sees people. I love this, God sees people. He says, the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. <clears throat> this is a major, major theme in the passage. God is not, he's not hiding this, and, and the author Moses is not hiding this when he writes it. God, God clearly favors the hated, the outcast, the ugly. She's just not as pretty as Rachel. God sees her and opens her womb. And shows her healing and love. Uh, and so he chose her. And this is not based on any worldly precondition, again, right? This passage, does this passage ever say that Leah is a good person? This passage never, never even comes close to that. She's not, compared to Rachel now, uh, especially, there's no precondition here, right? She's not saying she's a better person than Rachel. And Rachel's not necessarily painted as some kind of bad person here either. God's going to work through her children too. And we'll come to that. But Leah is loved here. And her barrenness is healed, which puts her among a, a, a selective but important list of barren women 
in the Bible who God heals miraculously to show her and others that God saves. In the light of Christ. And, and remember this, guys. When Jesus comes and in, in terms of like who are his ancestors, when he comes from a certain line, it's a theological idea. It's not just history. Like, oh, okay, that, I guess it's like a history book. That's where he came from. Bloodline alone. Got my family, family tree. Or what do you call those things? Is it a family tree? Family tree thing going on here. That's great. Right, I write that in my Bible too. I just want to track who are these people and write them down. That's great. But that's not even close to being it. Theology is more important. So what this line, what this family tree represents ends up being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He, he's the finish line to what these themes. So the idea of barrenness being overcome it's really pretty much only in the line of Christ that that happens. There are some exceptions, but the fact that, you know, earlier, I mean, we've already seen the Sarah, then Rebecca, and now Leah, right? It's, it's a repeated theme. God overcomes barrenness. God overcomes death. God overcomes non-life to bring about life. And here he's doing it physically, miraculously. Later, it's through Jesus Christ alone he's the he's the the ultimate descendant of that idea so when he came in the into the world he was born through a virgin to embody that idea he healed people miraculously and on that cross he's healing spiritual barrenness for all who believe forever he's healing inner death so that life might come and sprout up from the graves of our hearts so understanding that is crucial but 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 again moving on from that just the idea that that god would favor this woman um it's just so beautifully simple you know and and i think indicative of what kind of king would come from her in one of the uh kids books we use here at the church to teach our i believe just little lights now we used to use it for a wider swath of kids here but called the jesus storybook bible downstairs uh that that book comments on this story i think in a way and i think gets the point in a way that a lot of modern academic commentaries just miss it's just so simple it says this one of leah's children's children's children would be a prince the prince of heaven god's son this prince would love god's people they wouldn't need to be beautiful for him to love them he would love them with all of his heart and they would be beautiful because he loved them, like Leah. And so this point cannot be stressed enough. Uh, you know, if Leah is a picture of us, and, and she is, but like Leah, we can ask this question. We can look and, and try to see ourselves in her and ask, are you hated? Are you ugly? Are you barren? Are you dismissed? Are you lonely? Are you unloved? Is your marriage on the rocks? Does your husband hate you? Are you forgotten? Are you sick? Are you blind? Are you full of sin? Are you insecure? Do you have bad theology like she does with Levi? What she says there in terms of it's more about her husband, uh, Jacob loving her than about God and more about works than grace. Or something like this. Is that, is that characteristic of you? In what ways? How can you resonate? How can you relate? Specifically, and broadly this is all of us, to be clear. All of us spiritually fit in, in, in all these categories. But 
but specifically physically. Where are you coming from? What are you bringing into the room? This is Leah. The good news of this passage is that God sees you in this place. He, he looks, he's active, he's looking for these types. He wants to save, he wants to heal barrenness, he wants to correct theology, he wants to take sin away, he wants to work on our hearts, he wants to enter into our mess and bring about flowers to kind of grow up within this and around this grave and bring us up from it. He wants to resolve marriages, and even though we're hated, rejected, dismissed, blind. I mean, these are, and a lot of these things are directly things that Jesus does later, right? Directly things. God is sort of doing that here, generally. Jesus specifically and ultimately does, does this. He, he saves us. He heals us of our spiritual barrenness, and he loves us. He selects us. You know, Jesus says in Mark 2, I came for the sick, not the healthy. In other words, I came for the Leahs, not the Rachels. There are people that Jesus did not come into the world for. And that doesn't actually mean that, that he's rejecting like, you know, half of humanity kind of outright. But the point is, we're all Leahs. That's the point. People who think they're Rachels, who think they're beautiful are the ones that Jesus rejects. This is exactly what you see in Jesus' ministry. You see religious leaders who think they're beautiful on the outside and actually kind of are, rejected for the sake of the Leahs, the sinners, the outcasts, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the ugly ones, physically and or spiritually. And the Rachels are kind of like, what's the deal? Haven't, have you missed my beauty? It's the exact same story repeated in Jesus' life. All are Leah's, but those who think they're Rachel's. All are sinners. All are sick, but those who think they're not sinners and are healthy, those are the ones that Jesus did not come for. He came for those who understand their sin, understand their state, their condition. And so it's actually kind of offensive, right? There's, there's, a, there's an element of offense to, sto to Jesus' story, but back in Genesis 29 and 30, it's kind of offensive, right, in one sense. Like, what about Rachel? Did you guys, did you guys feel that with, when the story was read? It was kind of like, well, come on. Kind of a bum deal, you know? You're all set to get married, and then this other girl kind of sneaks in. Like, your dad just totally messed it up. You know? And, and so there's a bit of an offense there. Like, you kind of feel, wait a minute, unfair. Unfair. That's what I think. Unfair. But guess what? This is what we've been seeing all throughout Genesis. Grace is unfair. Grace does not come to you based on what you've done. It doesn't come to you based on your performance. It comes in spite of it. So if you see unfairness, you're seeing a gospel image. See how it's supposed to burn? It's supposed to rub a bit? That's why, why Paul says, I consider all of my, in the New Testament, all of my righteous works filth compared to knowing Jesus Christ, Philippians 3, his death and his resurrection, compared to knowing that new, God, that new covenantal law, so to speak, or, or gospel idea, it's just knowing what God has done for me on that cross. Even the good things I've done, filth compared to that. It, there's an, an element of offense and unfairness to the gospel. It's about God's choice to love. 
God chooses to love us here on his time and in his way. We don't climb the ladder. He comes down the ladder, as we talked about last week. But again, this is exactly what happens in Jesus' ministry. Good people, the Rachels, are offended at the Leahs being accepted. So we feel that kind of, that, that early drama of that idea, this unfair grace kind of come, we feel the tension of that idea in a story like this, as messed up as it is. And it is very messed up, very dysfunctional. God starts to kind of whisper this idea that it must not be about works because the ugly is chosen. It must not be about what we do because it's Judah that gives way to Jesus, not law, Levi, person. It must not be about works because the unexpected is chosen. And the first marriage Jacob has before he turns into ultra-polygamist here is to this Leah character and who gives way to Christ. That's the moment, or at least week-long moment of monogamy for Jacob when he's married to Leah for that one week, and that's where Jesus came from, you know? So there's that layer kind of there too. But I, but I love this element in Genesis. Again, you, man, if you have not read this book, note that pattern of God doing this, reaching out to rejects when other people have turned their faces away. And a lot of times it's to women who have been left for dead, dismissed or mistreated, and God pursues them in the desert and speaks to them and saves them. And that's not all of us physically, but it is all of us spiritually. And it's one of the main purposes of the Bible, and I'll just say Genesis for now because we're in Genesis, not to modify our behavior or demand emotion, but to say, look what God is like. Amazing that he's like this. Almost unfathomable that God looks for Leah's, looks for Hagar's, back in the earlier part of Genesis, looks out for them. Kind of almost passes over sin. Did you forget, God, what Abraham just did to his wife? Did you miss that? Of course he didn't. But as Romans 3 says, in God's divine forbearance, he passes over former sins, knowing that later he's going to atone for them through his son. So that when God passes over, kind of forgets, kind of is strangely silent about sin in the Old Testament, we know why. It's an image of this later deliverance and salvation. He's going to fix it. He's going to ultimately pass over sin here at the cross. That's where we have a divine substitute. So now if we believe in Jesus, it's, he, passes it, he passes over it all for us. But, but again, Big point to these stories. Look at what he's like. If you don't have a category for a God being like this, loving Leah's, you don't really believe in God. It's a faulty view. It's a figment of your imagination if God does not love these types of, of women and men, these types of people. So this is a course correction for many of us, for all of us, but maybe for some of you specifically today, is that God actually is like this to you. He actually is. Right now in this very room, he pursues you in your dysfunctional, messed up, sinful state. And he shows you grace. And he heals your barrenness. And he looks over your blindness. Your disfiguredness. He looks over it and he loves you because he's chosen you. He's, he's, and this is represented by Jesus coming in this line of choice. Leah and Judah and all of that. And, and 
So know that. God loves you guys so much that he's died for you. And, and the story begins in Genesis with messed up people like this who give way to that. With grace being preferred over works. With Judah over Levi. With Leah over Rachel. So that we're, when we get to him, we're not confused thinking, oh, now that God did that for me, now what do I have to do for him? I could never repay, but I'm going to try. It's very common for Christians to think that way. It's almost a little bit more Roman Catholic in some traditions anyway. But we also have that as Protestants. We have the same type of error. We, we don't fully get the gospel. Because Genesis 29 and 30 says what it does, we get to the cross and say, in the line of Judah, from Leah, from the line of gift and grace, not from the line of works and performance. God's gift to humankind. So our, our, our response is behold and receive um, and rest. And so in summary, it's four things here quick. Uh, Christ is the finish line to all of these theological truths today. Uh, the first is God works through absolute catastrophes to bring about salvation. It's good news for catastrophic lives like mine. I mean, if, if you have one. So that's in our lives, but it's especially at the cross, because the cross is a catastrophe in a worldly sense. It's an abomination. It's the ultimate injustice. It's an evil that God works through and intends to come into the world so that he can bring about a greater good through it. And if he can do that, how much more can he work through the smaller evils in our life? And injustices. Second is saved by grace, not by works. Two times in this passage, and for the, I want to say billionth, that's a little bit overstated, but for the maybe thousandth time in this book, saved by grace, not by works. Two times narratively in this passage. Leah, not Rachel. Judah, not Levi. Jesus comes from the latter. God loves outcasts, people like us, and, and we, we need to know we're more like Leah than Rachel in this passage. We're ugly spiritually, not beautiful spiritually. We need to know that or we'll never want the cross. And that's, that's just like this d human dilemma, right? We, we think we're the one and we're, we're actually the other. And if we don't kind of cross over and say, man, I am I, really like her instead right, right in here, we're never going to want God's grace. There's a reason why they're different women. There's a reason why they're different tribes in this story. Again, they're not... Jesus did not come from Levi, from law. He came from Judah. He came from the idea of grace. And that's, and that's the point. Worship. With Judah, Leah says, this time I will praise the Lord. This is where grace gets us. It gets us to worship. Because all we can really do is worship. If God does everything and we do nothing, that's the ultimate end. It's like Leah kind of got over herself, right? After three, three sons thinking, this is a lot of effort and Jacob's still not loving me, you know? And I think maybe one more. Well, she finally got past all of the, that, that and said, you know what? This time, I'm just going to praise God because my kids are a gift and he's sufficient. He's enough. Grace gets us to actually worship. If we think we're saved by what we do, we won't worship as much. I guarantee you it's philosophically untenable. 
to think that you will worship more if you live by what you do. You won't because it's about you. So what do you have to thank God for? If your good works are from you, you'll never thank God for them. If the paycheck you receive is, is from you, you'll never thank God for it. The food on your table is from, from you, you'll never thank God for it. Why? He didn't give it to you. You gave it to yourself, right? True thanksgiving and worship comes from the gospel. God is winning us back to a place of centralizing God again. And, and, and we stop making ourselves God at the foot of the cross because it's all given, nothing is earned, nothing's worked for. And so Leah and Judah and what she says there is beautiful. It's the point. It's what the gospel invites us to because we're saved, because God loves us, because we can rest now and cease working to impress him. That's the invitation we get. So like Leah, it's paradigmatic. Let your lives, first time today for some of you guys, I'm guessing for a lot of you, um, it's not. But there's a trajectory here. When you move from works to grace, you move from kind of a good person to worship. So as we, as we respond here with a couple of songs, let's do that. Let's thank God for his amazing grace given to us in the line of Leah and Judah. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel today. As always, we thank you, we pray, and rejoice in the fact that um, there is not just one daughter of Laban. There was not just a Rachel. If there was, uh, it it would be more damning news. There would be more on us. It would be more anxiety-ridden. It would be something we'd have to measure up to. We'd have to make ourselves beautiful. We'd have to, kind of in Jacob's eyes, have to work for marriages, have to work for love, have to work for your love. But in fact, there was a second daughter who came after more the, the Rachel. And, and so we thank you that, that Leah existed. She's like us. She represents us, and she represents Christ in a way, and her son Judah. God, has always been about you. Forgive us our sin, for, and not just the bad things we do, but forgive us for ladder-climbing morality and how we uh, just frequently, I know I do, just frequently replace you with that. And the Bible constantly, continually, metaphorically, allegorically, and literally, all throughout the scriptures, say grace, not works. They show it, it shows that, that idea, and it speaks and states that idea very clearly so that none may boast and we all might be clear on what the cross really is and what you are really like towards lost sinners like us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand again as we respond together.